Good morning, family. How's everybody doing? If I, if I haven't seen you this year yet, happy 2020. If you've woken up, it's 2020. Can you believe it? It's quite something to think. It feels like yesterday that we had our Y2K New Year's service. That's 20 years ago. And uh, I haven't aged a day since then, but it's 20 years later. So praise God. It's so good to be together and uh, just wonderful to see you all today. Um, there's many new initiatives and things that we're going to be starting and launching in this year. And I just want to tell you of one of them also. Uh, we are tweaking our baptisms a bit and going to do baptism a little bit differently. Baptism is a part of our obedience to the Lord Jesus, is to be baptized as believers because of the expression publicly that we make of our personal faith in the Lord Jesus. And therefore, we felt we wanted to do baptism in a way that is a little bit more involved with our community and celebrated by all of us together when somebody gets baptized. So we're changing that we're not going to have baptisms every week as we've used to do always, but we're going to do it once a month so that we build up a bit, get a group of people, and that we can all celebrate that together. On the 2nd of February, we're going to kick that off with a special time of baptism where we're actually going to baptize that Sunday after the service on the 2nd of February in the school's swimming pool. So if the Lord is speaking to you, if you haven't been baptized yet, won't you consider to get ready for the 2nd of February? All you need to bring is a towel and your, your costume and, uh, you know, modest costume, you know that, and uh, come and uh, be baptized. And we're going to all go together, those of us that want to after the service, and we're going to celebrate together this fantastic event in, in people's lives as we stand with you as a disciple of the Lord Jesus in this process. So please be part of that with us. And like I said, if you're wanting to be baptized, if the Lord is speaking to you, then make use of that opportunity on the 2nd of February. I want to share a word with you this morning that I've entitled More of God in 2020. And for the next three weeks or so, I'm going to be speaking about this topic and uh, just feeling to, to just orientate us and to help us just think about how can we have more of God in this coming year. Those of you that have been with us for any amount of time will know that our vision statement, you see it all over the building, is God's kingdom, hearts, homes, and beyond. That's our dream. That's what we're all about as a community, is to see God's kingdom come. Jesus prayed, Lord, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we do. That's what church is about, is about building God's kingdom, seeing God's kingdom become real here on earth. When I say God's kingdom, perhaps one of the ways I can describe that is to see God's rulership and authority established in our lives, in our homes, and in every space in this world. Now, you may say to me, well, that's nice, that's very religious, that's typical church speak. If you may be here this morning and perhaps you're not a church-going person and you're not used to, you know, Christianese as we call it, or perhaps you're not even knowing if you're a believer. You don't know this thing of the kingdom of God. It doesn't, you feel, well, that's typical what Christians would say, the kingdom of God. It, it really doesn't have any meaning for you. Or perhaps you're even a believer and you say, it's a, the kingdom of God, I've always struggled to really get my mind around it. It's a bit of a vague concept. But I just want to say to you this morning, whether, whether you believe in God or not, you are actually a person desiring God's kingdom. You may call it different things. You may have different viewpoints on it. You may not describe it exactly the same way as what we would do in, in church language. But I want to tell you that every human being has a desire for God's order to be established. Because we were made by God. We were made for God. We were made to live under God's rule. It is the only place where human flourishing is possible. It is the only place where this earth, the creation, this planet of ours, can be fully alive as it was intended to be, is in God's kingdom, under God's rule. Every human being was born with a sense of a desire for, let me describe it in, in a simple term, as that which is good. We all want good. We may slight, have different definitions of what good is, but we all strive and endeavor to improve things, to make things better, to, to have life become better. It's the story of, of the human journey. We're continuously inventing things, trying to push the boundaries, go new places to make things better, to make things more. 
What is it in us that does that? Wherever you find a group of people, they endeavor to make things better. They, they're not content to just stay with what they've got or stay in that space. They're always pushing forward. What is that in us? I think the writer of the Ecclesiastes, Solomon, in one of his wisdom portions, captures for us what that is that is in our hearts. That is particularly true of human beings. When he says in Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11, he says the following, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. And then he says these words, he has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. He has placed eternity in the human heart. There's something in us that calls to eternity. There's something in us that aspires to that which is not temporal, but that which is everlasting. There's something in us that wants things to be the way they're supposed to be. In, in the context of this portion of Scripture, what he's talking about, Solomon here, is he's saying that there is an eternal truth that this world and everything in it is built upon. And we may have moved away from that truth. We may not understand that truth, but yet there's a calling in our hearts towards that truth. We want that truth. We want things to be right. We want things to be good. And that's because of this eternity that's been placed in our hearts. Now for us as Christians, we believe that that is revealed to us through the scripture. What this is, this place of good, this condition of human flourishing, and we call it the kingdom of God. And we believe that Jesus has come to make it possible for us to step into his kingdom, to receive his kingdom on earth, his kingdom which is eternal, which is everlasting. You and I may live on this planet now and we may be very aware that my life has a beginning and an end as far as life on this planet goes, but we all have this eternity that calls to us. This desire for that which is bigger than us, which is more than us. Can I say that which is the transcendent truth, that is truth of all time, that is unchanging, that is the bedrock, the foundation that this world is built on. We strive to know that and to experience that. Now as Christians, we believe it's only possible to come into that eternal truth through the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't come to that truth. You can't come to the Father. You can't come to the kingdom of God by any other means than through Jesus that became the ultimate revelation for us of that which we aspire and seek for. So we live in the time where we are rebuilding through the power of the Holy Spirit the kingdom of God on earth where we are seeing his kingdom expressed. First of all, in my life. That's why our vision statement says, God's kingdom in hearts, in my heart. The first place the kingdom comes, in terms of me and my experience, is me, is here inside of me. I accept the rulership of God, the authority of God in my life. And then as I accept that, then through me, the rulership of God gets manifest in the places where I have influence and in the places where God allows me and wants to use me. I express the kingdom. I extend his authority, his rulership from this place of this eternal desire that I have for that which is always true and right. So every one of us that have submitted our lives to the Lord Jesus, that have come to that place of the Lordship of Christ, this is what we do. We build the kingdom of God. Now, how do we build the kingdom of God? And that's a big topic and we talk a lot about that. But let me just hasten to say this quickly about the kingdom of God, it's, it's like a, a two-step process. It's, it's got these two parts to it, these two dynamics to it. It's like when I walk, there's, there's two parts that makes my walking possible, my two legs. When I'm going to move forward, there's, I take steps with my left, and then I take steps with my right. Normal person, don't just you know, hop along on the right foot or you know, just do the two feet at once. We, we sort of go one, and then we go the other. And the kingdom of God advances and is built on these two parts also, these two legs. 
And we often call them, if you've been around here, you would have heard this. We talk about the invitation and the challenge of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God begins as an invitation. God opening up to us saying, come, come in, come to my place, come to my home, come to the place where I rule. It is open for you. And that's what Jesus came. He came to earth and he, and he died on the cross and he tore the veil and he made access to God's kingdom open and possible for all of us. And all we have to do is to accept what he did and, and, and accept the invitation and step in. It's the freedom of God, what he gave to us freely. He said, come, come into my kingdom. He invites us. That's the first step of the kingdom. But when the kingdom advances, then it's followed by the second step, the challenge of the kingdom. Not only is the kingdom built on that which I receive freely, that which is the invitation, the love of God, but the kingdom of God is also built because I accept the challenge of the responsibility of being a kingdom bearer or being a child in the kingdom of God. We, we can see this reflected perhaps in the, in, the, in the two things that Jesus spoke to us about so clearly, the one we call the great commandment and the other one we call the great commission. The great commandment in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 39, so familiar to us, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. God invites us because he loves us first. He loves us and he says, come into a love relationship with me. I've made it open for you. Any person that wants to is welcome. Nobody's disqualified. Nobody's excluded. Anybody that wants to come to me and step into this love relationship. The invitation is open and it's free. And if you step into it, you step into it not based on what you do, but based on what Jesus did for you. It's an invitation. And then there's the Great Commission, which in some way captures for us the, the challenge of the kingdom that is real for every one of us. Where Jesus says, then Jesus said to them in Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus says, now that you've stepped into this relationship, you've received everything that my kingdom has to offer. Now I need you to go and give that to others also. I need you to take up the challenge of knowing me and then making me known to others. And if the kingdom is going to advance, it requires that we take both the invitation and the challenge. Uh, I know somebody that uh, was blessed with a house recently was given a house, talking about a four-bedroom, big, proper, nice, in a nice neighborhood house, given, free, mahala. The people that gave them the house paid for the transfer costs, everything, said, the Lord said to us, we've got to give you a house. They gave them a house. How many of you want to put that on your prayer list for 2020? <laughs> Somebody will give you a house. Now, these people have lived for about 20 years in, as tenants in somebody else's house. And they probably would not have been able to buy a house, definitely not a house of this size and, and value. So they were given this house. What a fantastic thing. They were given the invitation by somebody to become homeowners. They were given the freely the ability to move in and live in a place of their own. But as they were given this house, they, they phoned me and they asked me if I could please come and help them and just to help them with some of the things that the house needs now. How do they do some of the maintenance? How do they do the swimming pool? Because they've, they, you know, what, is, what must they spend money on? What must, because they've never owned a home. You know, when they, you're a tenant and something's wrong, you pick up the phone, you phone the homeowner, the landlord, and they come and fix it. That's how it's supposed to work. Amen. I was a landlord, so I know. They carry the responsibility. You live in the house. You get the privilege of living in the house, but you cannot do in the house what you want because it's not yours. Now, they have to take up the responsibility, the challenge of owning a home. Every so many years, they have to have money put aside to paint the house. 
If there's a, a, a leak in the roof, they have to fix it. Make sure that it gets fixed. If, if a pipe bursts, they have to go and, and, and attend to it. If the, if the rates and taxes go up, they have to make sure that they've got enough money to pay for it. It's a different level of responsibility owning the house than just being a tenant in the house. And that's the invitation and challenge of the kingdom. When, when God invites me into his kingdom, I become a son and a daughter, an heir of the kingdom with full rights in the kingdom. But with those full rights comes the responsibility of living as a, as a son and daughter in that house that owns, that is a co-owner of that house. You know, you think of the prodigal son who left his father's house, who left his inheritance and went and squandered it all and ended up living amongst the pigs, eating the slop of the pigs. And one day he had a realization that he'd be better off in his father's house as a slave or a servant, as, as not an owner anymore, not as a co-heir, as, as just a slave and a servant. And, and so he came home. And, and when his dad saw him, he, he wrapped his arms around him and he said, bring the fattened calf. And, and they had a party and, they, and no longer did he have to eat the slops of the pigs. He could eat the fattened calf and get the robe and, the, and, and he was restored. But how many of you know that from that moment on, as he's restored as a son in the house, he cannot eat like he used to eat with the pigs anymore. He can't behave the same way. You've got to change your behavior to fit back in with the fact that you are now a son of the owner of the house. And this is actually your house. And that's the kingdom. I get all the rights and privileges of the kingdom, but I also receive the honor of the responsibility. And can I tell you, as a disciple of the Lord Jesus, our growth pattern as disciples is because we embrace the, the, challenge, uh, the, the invitation, we make use of every invitation that God gives us, but we also take the responsibility of the challenge. This morning you had the word that was given here of God wants to do a new thing. God said it's enough. It's not business as usual. There's, there's, there's things that you've been waiting for and praying for and God says now is the time. That's the invitation. But how many of you heard there was also a challenge in the word? Where the Lord said but there's a condition. If you want to step into the more that I have for you then you have to seek me first. Is, is God saying you've got to pay for my blessings? No, he's saying the behavior that is consistent with the blessings is that you put him first. If you don't put him first, then you're not in the place where you've actually accepted the invitation. Because this is an invitation to relationship, to God's order. When I come into the kingdom of God, when I bow my knees before the Lord and I say, Lord, I give you my life, I'm restoring order in my life. And then it becomes my privilege to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, work to continue to have that order restored in my life. And that's what it means to be a disciple. Another way you can talk about this is, is, is how the Scripture describes a big part of our relationship with God is it talks about worship. I become a worshiper. Worship is to bring order into my life. When I worship, I establish God's order. We sang it this morning, that there is no other but Him. That before no one else will we bow our knee. You see, and that's what worship is. Worship is to come and to say, God, I recognize who you are. I recognize your, your right to rulership. I recognize your authority. And I come in line with that authority. I submit myself to your authority. The word worship, we know, it means to honor, to revere, to adore, to pay homage, to render devotion, and to respect someone. When I see who God is, I come in line, and I bring my relationship into order with Him by worshiping Him, putting Him first. It is often said that worship is a response to a revelation. It's when I see God for who He is, I respond in a certain way. And the correct way to respond to God when you see Him is to worship Him is to fall down on your face before him. If you read throughout the scriptures, every time somebody sees God, they fall on their face. Right up to revelations with the, the elders that put down the crowns, they, they fall down, we fall down. We sing that song. It's the appropriate response to the majesty, the glory, the beauty of God is to fall down in worship. 
If, if you see God for who he really is, I don't know if you, if you really have any other option but to fall down and to say, Lord, you are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. You are the almighty one. You are the great one. There's many people in this world that does not worship God. And dare I say, it's mostly because they don't have a revelation of who God is. They have some skewed revelation. They have some idea that was presented to them by culture or by people or by even other Christians of a God that is not really a God that they feel they can worship. And so therefore their response to that which they have seen and which has been revealed to them is to not worship. They just don't have the correct revelation. They are appropriately responding to the revelation they've received. But this is our calling. This is our privilege. This is the amazing thing. This is the thing that blows my mind. That me, with all my failures and struggles and all my limitations, can be used by God to in some way show somebody who God really is so that they can appropriately respond to Him and worship Him with their lives. Us as a community, we're not a perfect community. But you know where I learned how to worship the Lord? was here. Well, not in this building at first, in Anderson Street. In the early 1980s, late 1970s, I was 10 years old, 9 years old. I started attending this church, and I started realizing what worship is. I was starting to be taught about worship. A community brought me into worship, and I First of all, a lot of the times I just copied people because I came out of a tradition where you didn't say beep when you were in church. You didn't move. And then suddenly I come to this place and, and people are moving. And they're moving rhythmically sometimes. Some of them not so rhythmically. <laughs> and, and they're loud and they talk and they, and they say praise the Lord. I didn't understand that. But something in me started being stirred and a, a life of worship was released. And it's been my journey, my privilege in this community that is known for its worship to learn something of what it means to be a worshiper. To express that God is first. That He is the one we love above everything. That is what it is to worship now, worship is such a big part of our lives and such a big part of our experience as Christians. It is such a big way that we make His kingdom known in this world. And sometimes we can get a little bit uncertain about what worship is, but it's so fantastic that the Word has enough to say about worship. Really good instructions for us. And I want to take you briefly to a, a time where Jesus Himself taught on worship. And he instructed somebody, he taught somebody about worship. And, and dare I say, he didn't even just teach them about worship, he actually led them in worship. He became the worship leader that day. And he took this person and he led them into worship. He, he gave them the revelation of who God is, and then he helped them respond appropriately to who that God is. I'm talking about John 4 with Jesus at the woman of, at the well. You'll know the story if you want to read John 4. I'm just going to highlight a couple of verses, but Jesus was on his way. He was traveling, and, and, and he was cutting a shortcut through an area called Samaria. And, and uh, as he was getting outside of a town in Samaria, he was tired and hungry, and so he sent the disciples in to go and get some KFC from the town <laughs> with extra mashed potato and gravy, as Jesus liked it. And uh, he said to them, go and get some KFC. And He's just going to sit there by the well in the quiet time of the day. Nobody's in the, at the well in the middle of the day because it's hot. You know, if you come drawing water in those days, you had to do it for a couple of days. You know, if, if it's just for you, you had to go get a big enough vessel so you can get three or four or five days worth of water that you can bath in, cook in, you know, do your general household uh, responsibilities in. So people generally did it in the early in the morning or in the later of the day, and it was sort of be a social gathering in place. So Jesus thought he's pretty safe. He can sit here quietly by the well and nobody will bother him. But as he was sitting there, a woman came to draw water with her jar. 
She came and Jesus started a conversation with her. Very simply, he just said to her, can you, can you help me give me some water? Him being a Jewish man, she being a Samaritan woman, right there, there were some interesting dynamics in terms of cultural differences. He shouldn't speak to her because he's a Jewish man, a rabbi, clean, and all of that stuff. I'm not going to focus on that. But he starts a conversation with her. And the conversation leads eventually to Jesus giving her a revelation about worship that is some of the most precious understanding we gain about worship from Jesus. I want to read for you verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. In verse 23, he carries on. Yet a time is coming and now has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father see. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's two particular things that I want to lift out here, and, and I'm not trying to do exhaustive teaching about this, but two particular things that Jesus lifts out to this woman, this, this sort of nobody, this person that you wouldn't think would be the best qualified to receive the gold standard of what it means to worship in a New Testament context. But to this woman, Jesus shares. He says to her, first of all, you need to understand that the time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain, as the Samaritans claim that this was the place where you had to worship. If you really wanted to worship God, you had to travel to that mountain and worship God there. The Jews said, no, no, it's not at the mountain, it's in Jerusalem at the temple. If you wanted to worship, worship is found in the temple. You go to the temple to worship God. Jesus says, there's a time coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus was saying to her, you must understand that worship is being redefined in the sense that it is not bound to a location. You will not know where to go to find worship anymore. Worship is busting out of the house. Worship is flowing over into the streets. Worship will be found everywhere. And you need to know what you're looking for if you're looking for worship because you're not going to be able to recognize it by its location anymore. You're having the wrong argument altogether. Stop the nonsense. Stop talking about is it the mountain or is it Jerusalem. That's the wrong question. Because worship will be found everywhere. Because the kingdom of God is for everywhere. John Piper says, missions exists because worship doesn't. Those of us that have given our lives to the kingdom of God, we're on a mission to go and take the worship of the king into new places, to transform the places where there's not worship of God into places where there's worship. That's why our vision statement says, God's kingdom, hearts, homes, and beyond. Every day I go, every place I go becomes a place where worship is possible. It is no longer just located in a, in a confined space and in a confined place. You cannot name a place, I think, where you cannot end up and worship God. Now that may be controversial, perhaps you can think of a place, but because worship is an inner condition before it is an outer expression. It's here. It's my life. I am a worshiper. I know sometimes in our modern language we talk about that person is a real worshiper. And generally when we say that, we tend to mean that they love singing in church. Can I tell you, if you're a Christian, you cannot but be a real worshiper. I didn't get an amen for that very loud. If you're a, a, king, a, a child of Jesus, you are a worshiper. You can't be a little bit of a worshiper or a half worshiper or a somewhat worshiper. You are a worshiper. Because, not because you like it or don't like it, but because he deserves it. He qualifies for the worship. Let me tell you, it's really good for all of you that I never sing out loud. Unless the Spirit of God has come upon me and Mika has spent quality time with me. But can I tell you, I'm a worshiper. I'm a worshiper. You're a worshiper. It may mean a few different things, and we'll talk about that just now, but worship cannot be defined by its location anymore. So therefore, it used to be quite easy that if you wanted to see worship, you go to the temple, and you look inside the temple, and there's worship taking place. 
Now Jesus says you can't do that anymore. Worship will, you'll find it. So let me tell you what to look for if you want to see worshipers in action. And he describes to her what worshipers look like. Now, very important. He doesn't say to her, let me tell you what worship is. He says, let me tell you who the worshipers are. If you see these two things active in their life, they are worshipers. And then he says these things. He says, for they will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. If you want to see true worshipers, Look for people engaged in the spirit and in truth. It's interesting here that Jesus doesn't talk about singing. He doesn't talk about music. As far as I can read from this scripture, there was no music playing. There was no offering being taken. There was nobody acting remotely like it has come some kind of what we would call worship service. But they were worshiping. And I'll show you just now the beauty of their worship. They were worshiping God because they were acting in the spirit and in truth. What do those two things mean? And I've done as much reading as I can and, and just as I understand it. So I'm not saying this is the complete picture, but if I describe the spirit, it is what he says there. God is spirit and those that worship him must worship him in spirit. God is spirit. His essence is that he is spirit. Because God is spirit, he is eternal. He is suspended over all time and over all existence. God does not draw from time and existence. He gives time and existence because He is spirit. He is the only eternal being. There has never been a time where God has not existed and there will never be a time that God does not exist. God is spirit. He's above everything. Nothing can contain Him. Nothing can hold Him. Everything exists because of Him because He is the eternal one. He is spirit. Nothing exists without him. Everything depends on him, yet he depends on nothing but himself because he is spirit. And you must worship him in spirit. This is the, oh man, this is so fantastic. Can you believe it? That you, you, yes, you, little old you, or perhaps it's the beginning of 2020, the diet is still kicking in, little bit bigger you, like me, you know, a little bit more of a person than I was last year. Me, you, have been given the ability to connect with the eternal God. You have eternity in your heart. You have eternal capacity because you have been given a spirit. You have been given the same essence that God is made of has been birthed in you. God blew into Adam when he created him. Not himself outside of himself. He blew into Adam and he gave him the spirit, the same essence as what God had. So that when God speaks, you can hear him and understand. If God didn't give you a spirit, if God didn't give you his essence, then he couldn't communicate with you. You couldn't carry him and his presence. But because he did, you carry him and his presence in you. You can understand him. You can commune with him. You can interact with him. You can understand him. You can be an agent of his kingdom because you are eternal. And therefore, worship is in spirit. What that means is not just that it's a spiritual thing we do. What it means is worship is connected to this eternal reality. It is the proclamation of that which has always been true and will always be true, which is not changed by my experience, which is not dependent on our culture or our condition or our situation or our economy. There are certain things that is the spiritual truth on which this planet and the creation and everything is built upon. And when we worship, we proclaim those truths. When Luke led us this morning and we sang about Jesus, about our Redeemer, when we sang that everything is about Him, we were proclaiming, we were, we were worshiping in spirit because we were standing on that which is eternal. Doesn't matter how we feel about it. We proclaim the eternal. We worship in spirit. How many of you know that it is so great that your life is built on the rock of the truth of who God is, who He has always been, who He is now, and who He will be forever. You are not on shifting sands. That, 
Today, God feels different about things that he did yesterday. He is consistent. He is the same because he's eternal. Yet, we also worship him in truth. This is a fantastic thing. When we say worship God in spirit and in truth, that word truth connects to this everlasting truth. But it also connects to the truth of our reality today. That when I come to worship God, I proclaim that which is eternally true over that which is my temporal condition and situation. And I bring that to the Lord also. My worship proclaims the truth even of what is going on in my life and in this world right now. You see, if we only have worship that talks about the eternal truths, but it doesn't tie in, it doesn't connect, and doesn't draw in to the realities of our struggles and our, and our failures and our brokenness and the death of this world that we're living in, then, then we're practicing what we must be careful of as a certain type of escapism. And sometimes you can come to church and, and, and it almost feels like we want to escape the reality of this world and just sing songs to make ourselves feel good and just sing songs that, that, that makes us feel like everything's okay and, and nothing is bad. And, and sometimes the, the, a person like me will say to you, when you, welcome to church now. I know you've had a tough week. Leave all your struggles at the door. We're going to worship the Lord now. No, I'm so glad that I can bring every one of my struggle to the Lord in worship. Submitted to him. Not letting my struggles override him or question him in the, in the wrong sense, but bringing my struggles. Worshiping him from the reality of who I am. We see this, how Jesus did this with this woman. Can you remember that he was having a nice conversation with her? Uplifting her, spending time with her, making her feel good. And then suddenly asks her a very pointed question. Where's your husband? Do you know that Jesus knew the answer to this? He wasn't asking because he needed information. He was asking because she needed revelation. So he says, where's your husband? She says, I have no husband. He says, you're speaking the truth. You own, you've been with five men and the man we are with now is not your husband. I mean, that's not something you say to somebody you want to make your friend. Hey? I mean, you don't, you know, when you're meeting somebody at work for the first time, you have a conversation with them, start telling them all the things they've done wrong their biggest sins, their biggest reason for shame. The reason she's coming in the middle of the day is she's so ashamed of who she is. She doesn't want to connect with other people. And yet Jesus doesn't mince words. He cuts right for that which embarrasses her. Why does he do that? You see, because until we not only get the revelation of who he is, but of who we are, we can't worship. He says to her, this is who you are. You see, and when I come to the Lord in worship and I see His beauty and I see His majesty and I see how loving He is, man, I'm so quick to remember how terribly far away from that I have fallen. And that's why the prophets fall down and say, Lord, I'm not worthy. And when I come in worship, it's, it's so easy. But this is the fantastic thing that Jesus does. He doesn't name and shame he doesn't say, this is your sin and therefore you cannot inherit my kingdom. He says, this is your sin. Let's look it in the eye, accept it as sin, because then we can forgive it, we can move past it, and you can be my daughter. And you see the result of this when a little bit later the disciples come and they interrupt their conversation and she goes away. She leaves her jar right there, forgets the reason she came to the, to the well in the first place. She runs to the village she, this lady that was so ashamed, she didn't want to talk to anybody, she was avoiding people, she runs into the village, starts shouting, calling everybody's attention, calls a town hall meeting, posts on Facebook, you know, tweets everything she can to say, come and see the man who told me everything I have ever done. You see, when you know everything you've ever done through God's eyes, you can worship him. She became a worshiper. Because in that moment, she realized that the love of God is bigger than her brokenness and her sin. She may be born an, an outcast. She may be born somebody that is not supposed to get the attention of a rabbi. She may, she's of the wrong people. She's the wrong gender. She's the wrong understanding. She's the wrong activity. She's wrong in every way. But Jesus says to her, I see your deficiencies, but I love you. I love you. 
And she goes and tells the town, and the people of the town come out, and they come and meet Jesus, and they, they say, Jesus, spend, two day, spend time with us. And Jesus spends two days with them, instructing them, teaching them how to be worshipers of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is worship in spirit and in truth. You know, there's sometimes when we in worship in church here, and we sing a song, and we may declare something in the song like, Lord, I love you with all of my heart. And I'll be honest with you, there's sometimes when I sing that with my mouth, but in my heart I say, Lord, I so wish I could say that and it'd be true. But the truth is, Lord, my heart is sometimes cold towards you. Sometimes I'm pretty just interested in you. I can think of times this, just this week where I really didn't want to spend time with you. I didn't put you first, Lord. But I thank you that the everlasting truth is that you love me. And that my truth may be different than what you have established. But if I'm honest, if I'm real with you, then you can come and you can change me. You see, sometimes our worship comes from a place of our brokenness. Lamentations is part of worship. Mourning is part of worship. Crying because of our sin and being aware of how far we've fallen is part of our worship. Worship is not that thing in church that we do that makes us feel good only. I mean, it's great when the worship makes you feel good. But can I tell you, it's not the job of our lead worshipers to choose songs and to make music so that you can come in and feel good about life. Only. Sorry for saying that. Ooh, you can fire me just now. Sorry, Herman. I know you agree with me wholeheartedly. So. What is their job? Spirit and truth. To say, Lord, what are the overriding truths? And what is the reality that we need to connect into that overriding truth? You see, we cannot afford, and this is the important thing. Jesus spoke about worship. He didn't spend one sentence on this, how fast the music must be, how slow the music must be. He didn't speak one sentence about what instruments you must use and what instruments you must not use. What note you must sing in, what, you know, no, and let me stop there. I don't know anything more about music. He didn't describe any of that. He said, this is how you know true worshipers, spirit and in truth. It's worthwhile, it's important to talk about style, to talk about contemporary worship, traditional worship, contemplative worship, praise. It's worthwhile to talk about all of those things, as long as we don't make those things the main thing. Those are peripheral things, particularly in a community like ours. This broad, diverse community where we all come from different backgrounds. Many of us come from different worship experiences. You know, for some of us, worship is, I mean, praise, excitement looks like this. Hey? Oh, I'm so excited. Oh, it's bursting forth. It's bubbling in my soul. Oh, some of us, let me not even try. You know, we jabula, baby. We quiet. And it's fantastic that the freedom of all of those different expressions has been given to us. The scripture never instructs us that this is the way you worship. In terms of these things, it instructs us, this is what worshipers do. They worship in spirit and in truth. The last thing I want to say, and then I'm going to end. To come right back to the, the first thing that Jesus said, where he said, worship is no longer confined to a place. And that's very important for us to remember. It's fantastic that we come here for an hour and a half a little bit more on a Sunday, and we come and have a worship service in a place that is built to accommodate our worship, in a secure place, a place that the sound, the lights, the everything is so that we can have a, an, an unhindered time of just loving God and proclaiming eternal truths and bringing the reality of our struggles to Him. It's fantastic that we have that, but can I tell you, this is not worship beginning and end done. This worship is supposed to be the culmination of your worship through the week and the beginning of a new week's worship. It flows in and out of our public gatherings, our worship. Tomorrow, 
Five past 11, where will you be and where will you be worshiping? What are you going to be doing to worship God tomorrow? And I don't mean what songs are you going to be singing, what prayers are you going to be praying. I'm talking about what kingdom expression are you going to be giving through your work, through your hands, through your, through your presence. Perhaps you're a bus driver. Perhaps you sell vegetables next to the road. Perhaps you're an engineer or an accountant, even a second-hand motor car salesman. Can God be using you? Can your work, not I'm praying while I'm working or I'm singing a song while I'm working, your work in and of itself, intrinsic in your work, there's something of worship. Because you are an eternal being, connected to an eternal God. And when you know that, and when every activity we do, we do is worship to the Lord. My time is finished, I'll do it next week. I brought some of our washing along. And I wanted to illustrate how worshiping is done while hanging washing. I had to do a lot of hanging of washing, me and the boys, this week. And I was thinking, we always say this as Christians, you know, everything we do is worship. So I thought, let me try that. So one of the things I did is I hung washing. So I thought, okay, now how do I hang washing as worship? And I'll talk about that next week. So just giving you a taste issue, you've got to come. But is it possible? Can I ask you to think about it like this? Have you thought about how your whole life is worshipped to the Lord? We cannot make this hour and a half on a Sunday so important that we think we don't have to worship the rest of the week. We only come here, then it's covered. I'm done. I paid my dues. Now I've done. I think because we do that, sometimes you come to church on a Sunday and perhaps the guys or the ladies leading worship that you don't particularly, you know, you don't feel like you've got a connection with them and they're singing the songs that you don't quite like and then you all freak out because, oh, I couldn't worship that Sunday because you think, now I've lost it. I don't have another chance to worship until next Sunday. No. You've got every opportunity. What does it mean to worship your work intrinsically as a kingdom person has God's value on it? You are bringing God's order into this world. If you're an accountant, you bring order to things so that human flourishing can happen. That is kingdom. Are you doing it as worship? We'll talk more about that. Worship team, you guys lead worshipers. We're all the worship team. You guys can join me, please. <laughs> you know what I mean. So this is my thought that I want to leave with you today. Do you want more of God in 2020? How many of you say, I want more of God in 2020? I need more of God in 2020. How many of you say, South Africa needs more of God in 2020? I, I want to put out a challenge. Can somebody write a worship song about load shedding? I think we need a good worship song about load shedding. Something about, Lord, when stage six comes along, you are the light of my life. Hey? <laughs> I think we need a worship song because our worship needs to express the real things that we deal with. You know, we, we sing these nice worship songs of the, the sheep on the field. How many of you have sheep on the field? How many of you have ever touched a sheep on the field? We can sing these, I know some of you, thank you very much, spoiling my point. We, we can sing these very abstract, very nice and woo, nice songs. But worship is real, man. It's where the rubber meets the road. Some of the best worship I've done is when I don't want to worship, when everything in me is, is upset and feels like I don't know where God is. And then I come and I say, Lord, I proclaim in the spirit that you are God and you are good. And then something starts rearranging my insides. It doesn't matter what the style of music is or who wrote the song or who's leading. The true worshipers in spirit and truth. Do you want more of God in 2020? Can I say to you, this is how we're going to have more of God in 2020. Pray more, read your Bible more, do all those things more. Fantastic. But can I add something to your list of things to do? Take God to more places. And you'll have more of Him. It's very logical. Just take him to more places. If you want God in South Africa, take him to South Africa. He's with you. He's not with anybody else. I'm not, sorry, that came out very wrong. He is with other people also. But in some contexts, you're the one, you're the hope. 
Take him with you. Stop leaving him at church. We have got enough work. We don't want to keep him busy. He wants to go with you. He's, this is empty. When you leave, this is very empty. We walk through here sometimes, and it's like dead. His dog's not here playing the organ. We don't even have one of those. He goes with you. If you want more of God, just say, Lord, while I'm hanging the washing, I'm doing this as worship to you. When I'm speaking, whatever, then we'll have more of God. Our nation will have more of God if you take him where you go. So stand with me. Our singing together is a vital, amazing privilege to do. It is such a beautiful thing that we can come together as a community. And the scripture says this is the purpose of the church, to make known the manifold wisdom of God to principalities and powers in the air. And when we sing, the principalities may say that, that life is not good, but we say life is good because God is good. That's our job. That's what we do. And it's, it happens when we come together. But can I tell you, our nation is not going to change just because of what we do in this building. It's going to change because of the worship we give him outside. And please hear me correctly. I'm not saying go stand on the street corner and sing loud worship songs. I'm saying give your life for worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, we trust you for more of you in 2020. More of you in our everyday lives, Lord. We want to see you break out into new spaces and into new places. We want to see your kingdom advance in those places, Lord, that we've, we've not seen your kingdom's light shine. We want to trust you for more of you in our nation, in our city, Lord. That more places will come under your rule and your reign, Lord, under your authority. So that human flourishing can become possible. And so that the earth and, and, and all creation can, can rejoice in you and can be free in you, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. More of you, we ask, in Jesus' name. May the Lord bless you. Go and worship in spirit and in truth.